In an era where antibiotics are prevalent, post-operative complications still pose a significant challenge. Once patients are discharged from the hospital, the continuity of care often diminishes. They are advised to return to the hospital if they notice any adverse changes at the surgical site. While some patients are vigilant and seek medical attention for any minor alterations, others may delay their hospital visit due to social constraints or other factors. This could potentially worsen their infection or other complications that develop after surgery, which may necessitate further surgical intervention. This not only affects the patients, but also it burdens the healthcare providers and increases healthcare system costs. Remember, in any disease, prevention is the key. This is where predictive healthcare steps in. It's founded by Talal Ali Ahmad, a dynamic entrepreneur with a rich history in healthcare technology. The company aims to bridge the gap between clinicians and patients after their surgery. Through its platform, MyHealthPal, Predictive Healthcare employs AI-based post-operative wound monitoring technology to assess wound healing status, patient medication adherence, and vital signs. This innovative approach aids in predicting wound healing outcomes and potentially preventing surgical site infections or other complications that happens after surgery thereby promoting a more proactive and connected post-operative care paradigm. Today, we are honored to have Talal, the CEO of Predictive Healthcare. Welcome, Talal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, doctor, for the introduction. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Um, so I want to start from the beginning. Can yeah. you share the story behind the inception and the start of Predictive Healthcare? What motivated you to start this venture? Well, I have to take it is a two two reason. One is a personal reason. I experienced uh, the post-op recovery period with one of my mem- family members. We had one of my kids had a surgery. We came home. We followed the instruction, and we never got a call from from the doctor about like what's going on. So, and the wounds start getting like red. We call said, "Is it red as was before or more?" So, this I asked him this question on the phone. We can tell. I mean, it's red. He said, it's normal, it's okay. The next thing is, it's more than red. The, the wound is inflamed. We have to rush to the hospital. With this all, we could be avoided if we had, like, someone can look at the wound instead of coming to the emergency room. So that's one of the, that's what led me. So there must be another way where we can share information with the doctor except all over the phone. Because what's red for me, it could be very red for the doctor, could be very alarming for the doctor. And that's the miscommunication. And also, how do you feel? I'm feeling okay. Well, okay means could be different stories. So that's what I look at. Like we use smartphones every day in our life. We take we use to take pictures for everything. So I said to myself, why can't we use existing technology everybody use on a daily basis to communicate with our doctors and may, and help the doctor, not just sending data, make sense of the data before we send it to the doctor, so the doctor doesn't have to analyze. 20 messages or 20 entries in like a split between patient or between the surgeries. So that's what led me to the whole um, uh, kind of the idea of predictive healthcare. And I thought originally maybe it's me because it happened to me. This is a, something happened to me with my son. But then I'm involved with an NGO, which is a US-based um, NGO. They travel worldwide to do a cleft lip and cleft palate surgeries. And I noticed the same thing. The patient, they, after the surgery, they've been discharged. And for different reasons, they have no way to communicate with the surgeon or what's going on post-surgery. 
And the next thing is we see the surgeon, the patient comes into the hospital emergency room with either open wound or they did something they're not supposed to do kind of endanger uh, the outcome. So that's what the came out like, okay, this is not a Talal issue, it's a global issue. This, if this is fo patient follow-up, it's happening everywhere for different reasons. It could be because the patient, the surgeon is busy or overburned or understaffed, or it could be the, 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 the patient doesn't have the time or doesn't know when to go to hospital. So that's why I came up with the idea. I said, I need something off the shelf, people use every day to communicate with the doctors about their symptoms, but not overload the doctor with more information given precise information, they can act on it and follow the standard of care. And that's the whole idea behind predictive healthcare. Amazing. I, I really want to touch on a couple of points here you mentioned. First, like yeah. your personal story. Every yeah. successful founder I met in my life, like they have a personal story. People yeah. who got like, unfortunately in, in healthcare, like mistakes happen. And yeah. uh, it's not like the aviation industry where like yeah. they have checklists and it's 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 it, mistakes can happen in healthcare and yeah. lots of people who were affected by those mistakes they said it's enough i'm going to make a difference and yeah. um, this is very interesting I, i've seen this pattern again and yeah. again and i, I really want to thank you about point, mentioning the point of like we don't want to overwhelm physicians with lots of data um i really appreciate yeah. you knowing this because literally the amount of data that we get exposed to every single day, it's yeah. it's it's crazy. Uh, yeah. For us as physicians, not only like the data that you see uh, during your work hours, because yeah. like beyond after you finish seeing your patients and everything and looking at their data and their labs and the blood work yeah. and everything, you have your inbox where like the yeah. patients that they are not in your care right now, they are not in your clinic right now, yeah. they send you emails and messages and then you exactly. have your pager exactly. and then you have your nurses. So you understanding how painful it is for physicians to, it's overwhelming. It's it all, is, especially it for is. surgeons. And you just mentioned like the patient, they send already sending data and some data does not make sense to the doctor why they do mm -hmm. this. And one of the things we, we did, and we can talk about it later, is the image quality. Today, some patients send image to the doctor saying, hey, my wound, does my wound look okay? And we talked to surgeon and 90% of the time said either, too dark, you can't see anything, or still have the dressing on it, and that's the key. So the the doctor wasted the time looking at data, which he cannot or she cannot make sense out of it. So we're trying to make that's what we said. We're trying to make sense out of the data before we send it out, and that's why we analyze the image, make sure the image is clear first before we send it to the doctor. Gotcha. Um, can I ask you? So when you started this, like, what were the challenges that you faced, and how you were able to overcome them? Well, the challenge is uh, the biggest challenge was is to it's to convince the doctor this is not another hundred message you're gonna get a day from a patient, because like you said, they're already overloaded with information. So I have to make sure what I'm providing to this to the, the clinic, clinical team is a valid data, something they can use without overburdening them. So we wait on we work on the concept. It should take thirty seconds. For this clinician to look at the data and make sense this is ready need to follow up on it or he's okay or the patient is okay so the challenge was make the the flow of the information very smooth and does not take a lot of time from the from the clinician and that's took a lot of the part of the ui the user interface design how we flow the data how we enter the data all the stuff that's the biggest challenge for us technologically 
it is, the technology is there. So AI has been around for a while. So we use it for our own advantage to enhance our, 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 our product. And that's the challenge is how to make the product usable friendly for the clinician who has maybe 30 seconds between patient and for the patient who or she who was in pain, doesn't have time to sit down and enter 30 entries to talk to the doctor. And that's the biggest challenge, how to make it flow within a reasonable time for both the clinician and the patient. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit, bit more about Predictive Healthcare's platform? How does it work? Uh, how so, does it bridge the gap? Go ahead, tell me. So Predictive Healthcare, we created a platform called My Health Bell, which consists of two mobile apps, one used by the patient, one by the doctor. And we have a dashboard to use also by a doctor if they don't want to use a smartphone. After been after patients is discharged, they go uh, the patients go home with a mobile my health pal installed on their device, and based on profile sought by the surgeon, they can start taking picture of the surgical incision after day three or day seven, and I'll enter vital signs information. And we can collect up to thirty five KPI on vital signs, but usually surgeon asks for three or four. So the patient take a picture of the wound. We analyze the image first, make sure the image is clean, can be readable first, and we look for any characteristic for infection. Then we take the vital signs to enhance our finding. If let's say I look a bit red and the patient reporting, for example, pain for the last 24 hours, that's a red flag for, that, for the platform. So we take all this data, we alert the clinician on their mobile phone or the dashboard. The clinician look at the data, the image, the vital signs, and our prediction. They can follow our prediction or they can just look at the data and follow the standard of care. It's up to them. We, we made it in a way it's under a minute for the patient to enter the data and also under a minute for the doctor to look at everything and act, and act on the data. It's simple to use. There's no extra hardware you need. There's no special skills you need. And there's no setup, nothing needed at both ends. Gotcha. So let's imagine I'm a patient. And so I need to download the app on my phone. Correct. Other than pictures, you mentioned that there are also other uh, information that you can transfer to the surgeon. What yeah. kind of information other than taking a picture? What can I do? So we can. So we uh, right now we, we do a lot of the entry, the vital signs as a patient enter the data. We're not doing any connected device. We ask for pain level, for example. We ask for body temperature, if the wound warm to the touch, um, are they taking medication on time? And we track the medication adherence. If they're supposed to take antibiotic or painkiller every six hours, we track that. If, if they, have they noticed, we ask them, have you noticed any discharge in the last 24 hours? And we can detect that through the picture, but sometimes the patient might clean it, they're not, not gonna show up in the picture. We ask them about, are they sleeping well? Are they, uh, how are they eating habit? Are they exercising? All this kind of data tell the doctor the, the patient recovery and the well-being of the patient. Now, not every doctor is going to ask for all this data. Some of them, they're going to say, if they have a, a temperature or in pain, that's all I care about. If you come in, like, it depends on the specialty too. For orthopedic surgery, for example, are they mobile or not? So that's, that's, that's kind of data we collect too. So it depends on the surgery. We create a profile for each surgery. Or actually, the surgeon created the profile, say, this is the data I need to collect from the patient. It can vary from surgery to surgery. And it's, gotcha. a simple, it's the same question usually when you, the, the doctor asks the patient when they either call them or when they visit the office. 
when do you think, uh, so you, you mentioned that it is right now, it's uh, the data input, it will depend on like patients putting their data manually. Right. Either, when do you think you can, or do you think it's integration to other devices, like for example, detecting their mobility status from their phone, yeah. detecting their heart rate from their watch, is that something that you want Actually, to do in the future? And where are oh, you yeah, at absolutely. right now? Absolutely, so what, what we're doing now is looking at integrating um, um, kind of health device part of the network. So the patient does not have to enter data. We can collect it if they're wearing a smartwatch or they're wearing, if they have a device at home, the, 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 the hospital provided uh, the device, we can read data out of that. So the next step in the R product is integrating wearable technology and smart implantable devices to collect data because there's a lot of data coming out of those devices. We can use it and we use our algorithm to make sense out of it. Gotcha. Okay. So let's say I'm the physician. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I, I log into the platform and mm -hmm. I will decide what type of data I will get. Is that the yes, case? Exactly. You get the, you, you say, I'm doing, let's say, uh, hernia surgery. Mm -hmm. So you said mm -hmm. what I want to see. And when, the, when the, the surgeon logs in and sees, look at the patient profile, we provide a report. This is the pictures mm -hmm. and this is the, that they entered. And if we have any prediction, they'll be on the top, say elevated risk or standard risk. So the, and the patient and the doctor will say, can I agree with our prediction? And we use that data to teach the algorithm more. If they agree, that's mean we caught it. We caught the right data. If disagree, we'll ask why. And then we take that data to, 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 to teach the algorithm again to catch, to catch it in the future. But the patient, the doctor has the pictures, have the data, and they can act on it. Gotcha. Do you know, like, now I'm thinking about it, this is really important because, like, it's when, when we talk about patients, also, like, lots of people don't, I, I didn't see this when I was, like, before my training. So, for example, like, in case of uh, your kids, like, they are lucky to have a very, like, uh, attention detailed parents, father, mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that things are not going south. But lots of also patients are like 70 plus, 80 plus, those who live in a retirement home. And mm -hmm. uh, when they go to the retirement home, we hear nothing. I didn't do surgery, but I'm part of the internal medicine yeah. where we do like yeah. the pre-op assessment and post-op, if they develop complications, they come back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And once the patient leaves the hospital door, data shuts, we, we, we hear nothing. And then for some reason, the patient spikes a fever overnight, or let's say they become tachycardic. It could be sign of something, or it could be yeah. sign of nothing. They get immediately shipped back to the hospital. And that frail yeah. elderly person, after they get shipped, they get investigation for something that might not be really an issue. And they stay yeah. in the hospital for two, three days, which leads to immobilization which leads to more prolonged hospital stay, which leads to DVT. Um, it's it's crazy, the things that, pe especially elderly people, like the complications that they evoke just because of lack of data and communication. Sorry, go exactly. ahead. And also you have the, the people, even the younger age, who have pre-existing condition like diabetes and other condition. Exactly. Might have a side effect from the medication they take at post-surgery. And that's going to develop for something. And I know from the personal experience, when you leave the hospital, they give you pain medication, make your drives and make your sleep so you can rest. I mean, you could be sleeping all day, something happening, you're not noticing until like you look at it. And that's other things like, well, um, the doctor will call me in three days. Well, you need, we need to talk to the doctor today because there's something going on. So it's not just for a, based on age, 
based on pre-existing condition. And the doctor today, they have no clue who's like, they know the high-risk patient, the 5% high-risk patient, which they need to pay attention to. But there's some people medium risk, and they don't know which one of those medium risks will become a high risk after surgery. So they have to monitor everybody and get data on everybody and review everybody. And that's, again, we go back to overloading, pay, overloading data. I'm not going to have time. If, if a surgeon operate on a 30 patients a week or 10 patients a week, that's a lot of data to review on a daily basis about the patient between, between surgery or during clinical hours. Gotcha. Um, so far, what's your experience has been with uh, using uh, the predictive healthcare and my health pal? What impact has predictive healthcare had so far, both on patients and physicians? What do you hear from people who have been using it? So we've done a pilot with the, with the Global Smile Foundation outside the US, the US surgeon and, and patient outside the US. And the, the two things we looked at it out of this pilot, and we're doing more pilots in the US as we speak, we're gonna start next month, is two things, is the compliance rate with the patient use it and how mm -hmm. often, and also the accuracy of our data. I mean, are we giving good data? Are we giving, excuse my language, garbage data? So when we did the study in outside the US with the US surgeons, we out, the patient uh, compliance was about 85%. People mm -hmm. use the application because they said, I can be in touch with my doctor. I can send the data. I know someone's look at it and call me back. So that's the good, good feedback. The compliance is good. And also you can mirror that to the US. Post COVID, we get used to telehealth. We're used to talk to the doctor through, through an app. So we're not worried if this have we tried here. The second thing is how accurate our algorithm to provide data, because we can't just send the doctor elevated risk for all the data we have, then we're not solving anything. So we look at, we start working with doctor on, are we getting the right data for you? And that's when we, when, and are we predicting the, 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 the elevated risk correctly? And that will be 84% of the time we were correct, which is a good number. I mean, we're never, there's no technology can be hundred percent, but we aiming anything above 80%, close to 90%. That's a very good uh, prediction rate. And that's the focus. And a lot of doctors said, hey, I avoided the patient form to come to drive 30 minutes to see me where I can tell them, okay, I think you're, you need to switch your medication or you need to, to um, uh, do something else on your activity because it depends on the patient story. So cutting down on the unnecessary office visit, that's the number one, the doc looking at it. I don't, have, I don't need the patient to come in to look at it and say, no, no, everything's okay or do this and go home. The second thing is the emergency room. I don't have to send people to the emergency room anymore because usually when a patient calls in and say, I'm in pain, this looks very red, the next thing I'm gonna tell them, go to the emergency room or call 911. And that's something they can avoid if they have the data in front of them. And that's what the doctor told us. Like, you provide me with the data, which I didn't have before. I was flying blind between the day the patient is discharged until the next follow-up visit with 10 days or seven days. Now I can look at the patient on a daily basis, every other day, and can see, I can monitor what's going on with them. And that's a huge for me. He said, forget the algorithm right now. I know you have a very good algorithm, but you provide me with meaningful data. I can look at it and follow up on my patient, make sure they have good outcome. And that's the feedback. It's, it's important for us because it gives us verification. What we're providing is useful and the doctor can use. I would just want to echo on a couple of things you mentioned. It's like, mm. 
the back to office visit or back to see the patient, it's it's mm -hmm. it's far beyond thirty minutes. I can tell you about my own personal. So my, my my grandpa last year actually he had like a knee replacement surgery, and after the yeah. surgery he developed some redness in the knee, and he was worried about clot in his legs, which is like pretty valid. Yeah. But for me, like I knew this is like normal post op changes, yeah. but like you can never say this, right? No. Uh, uh, my specialty is internal medicine. I have nothing to do with surgical specialties. So we go to the emergency. And in Canada, everyone knows about the wait time. So it yeah. went to emergency at 9 in the morning. And we left the emergency at 7. He was seen by two physicians. Yeah. And first, the emergency physician was the first point of contact. They called the orthopedic surgery team. Orthopedic surgery team came and take a look. And said, there is nothing. This is post-op normal change. Go home. Yeah. From 9 in the morning, 7 p.m. That's around 10 hours seen by two physicians to tell you there is nothing and it's not only their day i was uh, i'm not gonna leave my grandfather oh, yeah, by himself it took from my day so this is the financial toxicity uh yeah. post-op changes that no one talks about this is when you take time off work to do something related to your health this is a financial toxicity that gets mentioned nowhere yeah i mean the financial toxicity for the patient is a huge and for the hospital even bigger maybe in canada a little bit different but in the u.s the minute you walk in in the emergency room for any case, oh, yeah. that's cost the hospital $30,000 by the time they get nurse allocated, bed allocated, all the stuff. And if it's due to a surgical procedure, 90% of the time, the hospital's not getting paid for that visit. It's part of the global payment yeah. they have. So it's a huge, I mean, I hate to bring money part of healthcare, but it is a nature. I mean, it's uh, healthcare is tied up to money, tied up to financial and affect everybody. And that's the key is we, we mentioned the loss at the end, not the beginning, because the, the, the whole idea is to provide um, good healthcare outcome to the patient. I, I completely agree. And you mentioned, so, sorry, go ahead. I, I don't want to cut you. I want to add no, an idea. So, after. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, providing healthcare, good healthcare outcome, but then also we don't want to cost the hospital a lot of money too. And that's what's causing problem because the hospital trying to cut their 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 the losses or the, they look at their financial and they discharge the patient early. They don't have enough staff to follow up on the patient, and that's when the whole thing. Instead of saving a million, it costs them three million dollars end of the year. You touch base on very important point. I, I I want you to expand more on it. So first, like we, uh, you you said, like we don't want to bring money. I, I think bringing money is the most important thing because like yeah. lots of startups and founders and researchers don't know how the healthcare system payments mechanism work. Like yeah. when you go to buy something from the store, you pay the seller and they get their money. You get your product. It's yeah. done. Here in healthcare is much more complex than that. Exactly. You have to know who pays for what. Because if you don't know that, no one's going to buy your product. Yeah. You mentioned something. I want you to expand on it so the listener yeah. can understand. So let's say I'm a, I'm a person who don't know how the healthcare system payment works. If I listen to you, I would say like, why a hospital or a physician will pay money to buy something where they can make money if the patient comes back to the hospital and they make yeah. more money. Okay. So you mentioned that the hospital don't get paid. Can you expand a bit more on this? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we in the US, we have the value-based care based mm -hmm. on the deliverables. And also when we do a surgery, there's a global agreement on how much the, the hospital gets charged. And that includes what well, depends on the surgery, the next 30 days follow-up visit or 90 days. So if I go to hospital and do a hand surgery, the hospital get paid X, let's say for number, number sake, $30,000. 
that cover all the follow-ups between the day zero I'm discharged to 30 days. So if I come back to the doctor six times, it's including the 30K. If the doctor said, you need to go to emergency room, the insurance is going to say, this part of its cost because of the surgery you've done, so we're not going to pay for that. You're going to have to eat that cost. And that's an agreement between the insurance, the payers and the hospital. So that's why it, it is critical for the hospital not to have people coming back to the emergency room if they enter the value base or the global uh, agreement or come to the doctor six times in a, in a span of four weeks because they're going to take time from the, the staff, the surgeon, and loss of income from seeing other patients. So that's why in, in a risk base where hospitals make money on, on emergency room visits, which is there's few of them in the U.S. I mean, they're, they're not a lot. Yeah, this product might not fit for them because they're going to prevent people coming from emergency room or office visit. They might not buy. They might not buy it. But I would say, don't. I would say ninety percent of the U.S. based hospital they're based on value based right now. Yeah, I agree. That's completely uh, right. So that's the that's how hospitals and uh, gets paid and being paid in healthcare is much more complex than that. So yeah, the hospital is. gets paid for the surgery after that for 30 days, whatever happens, it's on the hospital. And it's the same thing for even for physicians. There are some similarities and differences in Canada versus the US. Yeah. As a physician, when you see the patient the first time, you get paid the most. But then yeah. as you see the patient second time and third time for different reasons, you're going to get paid less and less and less until like you yeah. hit the bottom rock. So you will have less incentive if you're going to be paid by, of course, you want to take care of your patients, but yep. let's be honest here. There, there is some financial incentive for every physician to see their patient. And when that financial incentive gets low, that physician will always have that idea. We will be biased. I'm getting paid yeah. less. Why am I going to spend more time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and, and also hospital operate on a very small margin in the U.S. I mean, you're, you're single digit. I mean, any hit will affect the bottom line. Mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. why it's best for interest to make sure the patient like doesn't come back from the first time. And and um, is the, and the, one one thing I would say the patient come back to the hospital not because of the surgeon made a mistake, because when we as a patient when we go home, I mean we left with a stack of instruction what to do. I mean no no one read this stuff. I, I personally I don't no read one. it. No one read. No one read. So it could be the patient didn't follow the instruction correctly or waited until the last minute to call the doctor. That's what caused the problem. It's not always the surgeon problem. It's if what we do at home. And I'm, and that's that one I'm emphasize that it's not we're not saying this we're doing this because the surgeon's not good. It's just like when we when we patient goes home the doctor flying blind. Exactly. They don't know what's going on. I Exactly. I can't agree more. Um, sorry, I want—I don't want to cut you there. Were you going to add any other points? No. No. Okay. So we talked about we, we, you don't want to overburden physicians, and you mentioned that you have AI technology. Uh, mm -hmm. How does the AI technology uh, really work? How does it analyze and predict what kind of data needs to be sent to the physician and what kind of data is normal? Yeah. So AI, it's again, it's a tools we use to uh, go through data and and use it to 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 make sense out of it. So we train the AI on the model. We train the model. We take normal surgical incision wound healing normally, standard, and we show them and we teach the model. This was supposed to look like, and that's based on the surgery, not like for all the surgeries together. Let's say we take. Um, C-section surgery, we train that. And then we train the model on, on 
elevated risk wound, like how they start opening the redness, uh, the, is hydrated, dehydrated, all the stuff. And we say, and we index this image, say this, we really need to look for those. So when, when the patient takes an image of the wound, the algorithm work like, okay, I'm looking at an image. I, see, I don't see excessive redness. I don't see any opening and discharge. That's been a normal, not standard uh, healing. And that's based on what we train the model with. So, and the way we do it also, we, we, look in, we start looking at progression healing. So the image might look normal today comparing to yesterday, mm-hmm. but the image mm-hmm. might look very bad comparing to day three or day four. And that's mm-hmm. what the algorithms say, okay, there's, there's something happening between day three and day seven. We need, we need, there's an elevator, it's a red flag. We need to alert the clinician about that. So it's taken a lot of data, train the model to, to, look, to, to look for certain things. And that's what the, the and uh, send a red flag to the doctor. Again, it's an image. Also, the pain level. If someone has been in pain for the last twenty four hours, have a high fever, and and your your doctor, you know that not all the blood tests will show there's an infection. So it could be the patient face had the same symptoms that his his blood tests come back negative, no infection, and sometimes it come back then there's an infection. So all the signs, it's alerting the clinician there's something going on. My, we might not see it. Might not see it today, but it's going to happen tomorrow day after tomorrow if we don't address it. And that's what the algorithm is saying. We're getting this data. We make sense out of it, and we tell you you need to look at this patient because something is off here. Also, you mentioned something that it took me three years to understand uh, in uh, in my residency and my fellowship. So you mentioned the changes of a picture over time. Because data at point one might not be valuable, but yeah. data at point one versus point seven, it can bring so much value. Exactly. For example, I might see a patient the first day, they, for, for me, they might look like tired or like they are not, they're norm, it, they look very sleepy, confused. Yeah. I might get, get alarmed in the hospital. I'm just giving yeah. you an example. Yeah. The first thing I do is call the patient's family and talk to their nurse because I want to understand what is their baseline like. So making that comparison between point A versus point B and comparing both, not one point at a time, it is very important in medicine. And, and that's where experience comes. And that's what makes the difference between an experienced physician and like none or a person who's just starting. When I was like a resident of PGY1, I, I would look at a patient like not doing well. I would like, oh my God, what's going on? But like yeah. after time, okay, so this is their baseline and those are the changes I'm looking for. And that's what yeah. you, are trained to, you are training the data to do. Sorry, exactly. the AI algorithm to do. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a one thing, you brought up a good point, which I didn't mention. So we are trained, when we first discharge a patient, we take what we call the base picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from day zero and we take it for two reasons one is um, for the doctor to look or the clinician or the nurse to look at the picture and say this is a good picture and we use the light exposure the, the angle of the image for the next patient that the, the, the image patient is going to take because when you take a picture in fluorescent light it might look like very yellow if you take it from distance you're not going to be able to see so we develop what we call the image guiding uh, solution where we guide the patient how to take the picture. Like we tell them to move it to the right, up and down, get closer, and we automatically snap the picture. And that's, we use that part of the base image. And the second thing is the wound, how the wound looks like 
in day zero. I know it's going to be a lot of, it's very red. We can see the, and we look at sutures and everything. So in day four, if we can't see the sutures anymore, it is a problem because something over overlapping the suture, that's why we compare day zero to day four, day four. Progression is very important. Same thing with swelling. I mean, you take a picture of the wound today, it might look normal. But if you compare it to other picture, look, it's it swallows from day three to day five, for example. And that's gotcha. where we can. Um, talking about predictive healthcare, uh, how do you see the future? Are there any like, uh, software developments or partnerships that you are excited about and where do you envision the company in the future? So we, uh, so when we say platform is a big word, mm -hmm. platform means you come build everything. So we're not building a mobile app to take a picture and send it to the doctor. We're building a platform where to follow the patient from post-surgery all the way to recovery. And sometimes the recovery, the wound might heal between 10, day 10 and day 15. And after that is no problem, but this is the patient well-being. Did the, did the, is the patient doing well after the surgery? Are they eating well? Are they mobile? Are they going back to work? Are they doing any activity? So we're moving. So we, the progression for us is to monitor the wound, make sure the wound is healing. Then we go to the well-being. So that's one thing. So that's what we call a platform. It's not just take a picture and go. Then the other thing is if you have an implementable device, a lot of the devices today, they're smart device. They can report data. So instead of the patient, the doctor look at six different applications on the patients, we can combine all this together and give them one report about the patient between what's inside them, what's working, what's not working. So we're trying to be kind of add more to the platform to, to kind of have a, a whole view of the patient recovery from the post-surgery all the way when they go back to work and doing okay. Now, um, there's all people doing stuff in the digital health and remote patient monitoring. Who could be part of that that's whole ecosystem so we can, our application can be embedded with someone else doing certain uh, uh, patient monitoring tools or uh, characteristic. So we can either be part of that to provide the doctor with more information they didn't have with RPM. Because today, RPM monitor blood pressure, uh, fever, blah, 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 but that's good. But they don't have access to other data, which we may have. So that's why it, our expansion is to cover more data, either on our own or through partnership with other companies. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, we talked about the company. We talked about the technology. Mm. But I want to learn more about you i want to learn uh, I, I i read about you i read your linkedin profile i read and you you you've done a lot so now i want to learn about i'm you. staying busy <laughs> <laughs> you're you're very busy my friend you are very busy can, can can you take me through your journey like how did you become health tech entrepreneur what it's so how? yeah so it's our i started in um so let's give you a little bit. When I first went to school and it came here, I was looking at like what major, I didn't know what I want to do. Mm -hmm. so I was looking at different majors and I, and then biomedical engineering was about start becoming hot item in school. So I said, okay, my first choice is biomedical engineering. So I, I applied and decided my first choice is biomedical engineering. Mm -hmm. But then 
after the first year, I got a letter from school saying, congratulations, you've been admitted to the biomedical engineering. So I said, I got excited and I started talking to the advisor and the advisor, and he gave me the best advice. He said, once you go do electrical engineering right now, because biomedical new, right now you become a technician if you do biomedical engineering. And after that, you can do your master in biomedical. And that stuck in my head. I mean, I would do electrical engineering. I thought I'm going to do my master in biomedical, but I end up with an MBA instead of biomedical. So I end up in the telecom world. And that's what I started in the telecom world. I did all, all my career been as part of this, either started a company or part of the startup. And the telecom world is different. You build a technology, you sell the technology and you move on. And then after my last acquisition from vCentrix, I took a year off and like, okay, what do I want to do with my life right now? And that's what happened. I get involved with the Global Small Foundation. I volunteer with them. And I was surrounded by a doctor. I started listening to them, like about the pain point, or what the issue they're having. And they have, and literally they have not a lot of technology outside the operating room. Everything inside the operating room, but outside the operating room, they have no way to do any, a lot of things. And I said, well, first I'm an engineer. My DNA is like, okay, there's a problem here. I need to solve it. <laughs> and that, and uh, which without knowing the culture of the medical field, I thought like, mm -hmm. if you have a nice technology, we'll jump on it. No, it's, it's, you have a nice technology has to work for the doctor. The doctor cannot work for the technology. I mean, has to provide data to the doctor to use it and make his life easier. Yeah, we all have the shiny phone. We all have this stuff. But if, it, if it's going to give me a hard time to use it, I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not, nobody's going to use it. And, and learn the hard way. Two things, two lessons I heard the hard way, learn and starting in the medical field. One is the attention span of the doctors is small, given their busy <laughs> time. So if there's three clicks, they don't get the data, they're not going to use it. That's one. The second thing is you cannot tell the doctor I'm here to help you because that's insulting the doctor right away. Say like, who said I need help? So we get the point of like, let the doctor conclude if they need the tools or not. So that's what started. It's more like a challenge how to build a technology to the medical field. And that's what it, the whole thing started for me. Okay, there's a solution. I need to build it, but not just build it. I don't want to build a toy and say I build it. I wanted to, people to use it. And that started talking to more doctors um, in the missions, outside the mission. Um, I went in the OR, OR room a couple of times, watch them how they work. I went to the recovery room, seeing how they work. I just want to learn the process. And that's why I decided, okay, there's something I can do there, but I have to be very patient because it's not going to go quickly because their adoption rate is low. So that's why I got started with the medical technology, hanging around doctors, listening to them and figure out there's something to be done there. There's a lot of help we can provide on technical level to help the doctor. And that's the, whole, the whole story. I can't agree more with that. You mentioned several important things. The rate of adoption for a new technology is very slow in healthcare. And that's where yeah. my frustration come from. Um, I, I love medicine. I love technology, but healthcare adopting technology is very slow, and we we are behind uh, other industries by a lot. Yeah. Um, the UI UX in healthcare literally sucks. Yeah. And you mentioned something else. I want to about how doctors adopt technology. Also, I want to add that doctors don't know what tools 
they need or they want until they use it. So you have to bring something, you have to throw it in their hand to use it. But beyond more than three clicks, the adoption rate will drop significantly. I'm having a hard time to convince my friends to use ChatGPT, which is like, there is no clicks. You're just going to type something. They're missing it's a lot. It's going to make your life easier. So imagine bringing new technology and teaching. Uh, and also like, usually like, bringing new technology to the market, you have like the 20-year-old, 25-year-old, the early adopters who jump on it, any technology. But when yeah. you bring in technology to the healthcare, most of the people who are going to adopt your technology are 30, 30 plus, especially surgeons, which like yeah. to be becoming exactly. a surgeon takes 10, 13 years. So like though, by the age of 30, you are already like done with learning technology. You want to just call it a day. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think, and also you, you did the best thing. You interviewed people. You ask them what they need. And yeah. this is something unique I find uh, as uh, in you and uh, um, in your uh, company as well, because I, and, and that's what Stanford also like they do, like they send researchers to interview people. What's your problem? Okay, so now let's work on that problem. Yeah. That's the best way of solving problems in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we didn't develop the technology to say we have a new technology. If mm -hmm. you, if you use it, you're going to lose. I mean, if you don't use it, you're, you're at loss. We built technology, they, it's going to make a difference in their life. They're, they're seeing a lot of patients, they look at a lot of data, and they overwork, they're burned out. I wanted to provide something It's going to help them make the day looks better instead of working more for the technology. So, and I, again, there's, if you go to a hospital, you see a lot of people trying to sell to the hospital different technology. Doesn't mm -hmm, mean mm -hmm. they're bad, but probably it's not the right time or they don't have the right person uh, to talk to. And that's why our approach is we talk to surgeons because they are on the front line. They are the people getting the calls from the patient. They are the people burned out. We didn't talk for say for the CMO at the beginning because CMO have a bigger picture of the hospital. Yeah. The surgeon is the one need to look at it and say, yes, I like this, but if you move this, I mean, we talk to surgeon and small things we don't pay attention. Well, yeah, I look at things in the upper right corner. You put it in the left corner, I'm not going to notice it. If you put an upper right corner for me, it's more important. And that's a small thing. It's for us is switching things, but it make a big difference when you, where you put the alert on the screen. And that's come back, comes back from talking to surgeon to user. And we and not just surgeon, we talk to nurses, wound, wound, wound management nurses, we talk to physician physician assistant because they'll work hand in hand with the with the doctor after surgery. And we ask them, what what do you want? What do you like to, what makes you gonna use this? So the doctor said. I'm okay with a mobile phone. I can walk between patients, look at the phone, quick, quick, I'm done. But the nurse said, listen, I don't want to pull my phone in front of the patient and look at data when it beeps. I want it in front of me. I want it to be part of what I'm looking at on the screen. And that's why from day one, we decided to integrate with EMR because we're going to get data from the EMR and we can push back to EMR. So the, the users, the nurse, the physician assistant are looking at the same screen. They don't have to look at three different devices to look at the data. And that's critical for us. It's like, what's the big deal? You can pull your phone, look at it, and while you're working. Well, I never worked in the hospital, so that's it. Apparently, it's a big deal. So it that's part of, part of the interview process, part of learning the flow of the hospital, of the clinic, how to develop the application or the technology. I can't agree more. Um, can you tell me about your experience with dealing with regulatory bodies like the FDA? Uh, how has it been? And uh, <laughs> I see you smiling. I see you smiling. Oh, man. This is, yeah. 
Tell me, tell me about it. Tell me. So um, we <laughs> started. To my world. Yes, we started with predictive healthcare at in, in early 2022 when mm -hmm. software as a matter of advice was like a buzzword of people talking about it. FDA took them a while to catch up with the terminology and what you need to do. So when we start working with the FDA uh, consultant slash advisor on this, and we said, okay, we have a software that does one, two, three, four. We need to make sure we get listed the FDA first and then go to 510. But we start working, we find out like the question they're asking us are based on hardware. Like, okay, I don't have hardware. I have a, I have a software is gonna work as a hardware. So they said, oh, what happened if the power failure? I said like, there's no power inside the application. It's on the phone. I don't own the phone. So it, it was a long journey, frustrating for me because like I'm sitting in front of 50 documents. I have to answer all these questions for the consultant to submit this stuff. I'm like, it does not make sense. It, it got better now, by the way. This is when we first started. Now is better. Now we're focusing. If you have a software as a medical device, is a different focus. It's focused on the privacy, the cybersecurity. So we moved from hardware, now we have to focus on different stuff. So that's why I say FDA process is a journey. You never say I'm there, I'm done, because it's keep going, especially with data. We have data, you're at risk of uh, cyber attack, you're at risk of losing data, there's a lot, too many things. And, and that's why it's a journey, you have to be evolving and make sure you're always ahead of the game. And it's a frustrating path. I'm not saying it's simple. That's why there's people specialized in this and uh, I, I did I did the first uh, workout of the FDA uh, listing. I won't do it again. Um, that's why there's a special people for that. And I highly recommend it. Anybody want to start something in the med tech, start looking at FDA stuff early enough and make sure you have the right team or right person next to you. Yeah, I can't agree more. I, I, I interviewed um, an attorney about uh, FDA uh, regulation of medical devices, and uh, it's it's. It's not only the FDA. I just want to assure everything in healthcare. Everything, yeah. Everything in healthcare. There is tons of bureaucracy, tons of paperwork, tons of... I've been working on submitting a research paper for the last six months. And yeah. I've put on this research paper, I would say, more than 100 hours by now. Yeah. The, like, the process of writing, being reviewed, they will submit... Uh, uh, the comments, you have to respond yeah. to their comments and everything needs an evidence. Everything is with numbers. Everything, it's 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 very long process and that's why like healthcare needs like some type of people who have like really long patients and like yeah. they can, they are good at negotiate, written negotiation. Yeah. Everything is written negotiation. It is. And, and the thing is that they have a lot of certain rules we have to go by. For example, we are uh, FDA class one. So we cannot do mm -hmm. diagnostic at this level. So we, that's mm -hmm. why we say elevated risk or standard risk. What do we say on our website? What we say on material? It's everything has to be like verified before we say it. Otherwise we get in trouble. And, and, and we collecting enough data to know what's going on with the wound. But because the FDA said class one, you only can say this. So we say elevated risk. We've, we Our model, our plan is to go from predictive to diagnostic. Then we have to do 510K. We have to go through the whole process again. And we are started with that. So it's gonna be a long journey, but at least I know more right now what I need to do versus two years ago or a year and a half ago. 
I'm happy you stayed in the healthcare and you didn't leave. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been called stubborn, so, <laughs> so I don't give up easily. Um, good. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm still, uh, I, I know we are almost at time, but I just want to understand a bit more about your strategy. And yeah. I, I want to, me and like the people who are listening to learn from you. So yeah. everyone, every time I interview people and CEOs, I want to understand like, what are the some key considerations that you take into account when you hire people? What are the things that you look for when you hire people in your team? So um, in a startup world, it's different than well-established company. So in startup world, it's, it's you spend more time with the person in the startup days because you're working closely, small space, you're discussing everything with them. So for me, it's about synergy between you and the person. So anybody went through a four-year of college, they, in my opinion, they're able to learn something new. They can follow something and deliver. But if there's if the personality conflict or, or there's, there's no synergy with it, between you and the team member, that's going to be a problem. And that's why when I interview people, I look at the, the, back, the, the education. Okay, if I'm looking for someone engineer, I've done some development, that's good. Now let's see if they can listen. If they, are, they, are, are they flexible? Are they can are they doer and it's a personality hire versus like experience hire because it anybody can develop a code but if they don't listen to the patients they don't listen to the customers they don't listen to the team we end up with nowhere so for me is a personality first before the experience because i can teach them the experience i like to take a lot of uh, people with no experience i'm i open the door for that and i'll people do that and just like because the people like still have no experience, they're eager to learn and they're eager to do things. But I want to make sure that the right personality for that. And I was successful a few times and I was, I failed a few times with people, I misread people and didn't work out. So the key is in a startup is make sure there's positive energy between you and the, and the person and the team and they have, and they're a doer. They're not just sit there, they're going to code and say, this is my code, I'm done. There's more than just writing a code. I can't agree more with that. And um uh, I, I i'm sure you read uh jim collins yeah. uh his exactly i feel like yeah. every founder i speak to like it's the same concept it's about this yeah. well so, so there are some cases where you need experience there are some yeah. founders who also told me like they want to see some but but like i think you need the ethical part like you need you need someone who's willing to work 12 hours a plus when things are needed yeah, um, versus someone like just going to do the work and go home. Sorry, go ahead. And also, if if also if you acknowledge the person you're hiring, their weaknesses, you know they're weak in this area. So mm -hmm. if you acknowledge that, that you can build that, you can improve that weaknesses to become and an, not an issue anymore. But mm -hmm. if you if you don't know their weaknesses and you keep pushing, 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 you're not going to get anything. I mean, there's certain people, for example. The user interface um, designer, UI, UX people, they're very protective of their ideas. I mean, if you tell them, if you give an opinion about the way they develop, and it's kind of, it's an insult for them. So the way you deliver the message, they have to be different than when you talk to an engineer. Because engineers are like, this is a code working for well. Well, your code is not working. They take it. Well, the code is not always perfect that they, they want, but in the in the design world, it they it's it's an insult for them to say, I don't like this. You have to use your word very carefully what to tell them when they present something for you. So it and for me, acknowledge the person's weaknesses and strength strength is a key when you hire someone. Because 
it make it or break it. I can't and, agree more. Uh, you sorry, can what? have a person, you can have an extrovert, you can have an introvert. I mean, you have to understand that. Then if someone is doesn't want to be in public, you can push them to be in public because they're not going to be comfortable. They're going to start like be afraid to come to work, afraid to, to say anything. So you just create an environment for them to be comfortable. And I'm not going to hear to, I'm not a, a doctor to treat them here. I'm just want to get the best out of them. Yeah, it's uh, again. I think this resonates with me. I, I really quote a lot from books. I uh, I listen yeah. to. I read. Uh, th this same thing was mentioned um, in uh, Ray Dalio's book Principles, mm -hmm. uh, how he built uh, Bridgewater. He he paid so much money on even psychology. He he went far and above beyond the ball. Like yeah. they when Bridgewater started they used psychological tests to know each person's personality and what are the things that they are good for and yeah. put them in the right position. So it's just, again, the same concept in different picture, in different industry. Um, and and one thing is, if you tell the team or the person what's the goal, they understand where they're working toward, it makes a big difference. If you tell mm -hmm. them your, your part is to do this, but the big image is this, they understand the role, how important to be part of the big pictures. So they don't feel like they they're individual contributor. They they don't matter in the company, or they don't matter. They don't they don't matter in the team. So tell them what's the, the big picture, where they fit in the big picture. I've, I through the experience, I felt this people people understand and they do do better when they understand where we're heading and what's their role in this big picture. Gotcha. Do you have any specific principles on building teams? Uh, what are the things that you look for when you're going to bring people together? The, it's the same principle. Is like you ha you have to have an idea. Like you have to tell the person where they fit in in the whole picture, so they know the role and how important for them to do their part because it's going to affect the big picture. And make sure we're all in the same team. Um, and 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 their work, if they slack, is going to affect other people. And we're not against each other. So it's my like like a teamwork and work together and look at the big picture and communicate with them all the time. That's communication is going to be key for 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 everybody getting to the startup, because you don't want to be the CEO running trying to launch a company and doing things you're not telling the team what's going on, because they're not going to know. Well, there's something coming down the pipeline or people complaining about one of the features or we decided to switch or di uh, switch um, vision, not switch vision, but switch a little bit the product a little bit to make more adaptable by the by the doctors, by the customers and technically. So you have to communicate back to the team what's going on. You cannot be like living on a, in the bubble by yourself. I'm the CEO. I can do whatever I want, but you have to communicate to the team also. Gotcha. Are there any you had experience in this and you had successful exits and you build startups, you build companies. Do you have any core values or any like principles that you believe help you to build successful start startups and like exit and achieve your goals? So, I mean, core value, it, it is, is a big thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's matter of the core value is to be honest with yourself about what you're building. So are you building something is going to be useful or are you building something because you want to look good for yourself? So in my case, I always build something because I want to be, it won't has to be useful. It has a meaningful use outside 
myself, inside myself. So the key is to build something people are going to use. And you have to take, uh, also, you could, I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, you have to accept that. I've, I've done a startup. Um, at least, at, I, I would say one of them never took off. Another one's failed halfway. So I learned from that mistake. So you have to accept you're wrong sometimes and you're right sometimes. And you have to and I admit to be wrong. It's, it's harder some, most of the time. So you have to be ready to take the good and the ugly part of when you start a company. It's not always rosy. Um, and also you have, yeah, yeah, you have to, yeah, you need to be wanted so bad in order to succeed. You can say, oh, it's easy. I can do it uh, within two years. I'm exiting. No, I mean, it's a lot of work. It doesn't matter if you do it three times or four times, no two startup look the same. And myself, I keep saying like, it's easy the next time, but it's, it's never easy. It's the same process. The, the situation is different. I mean, when you start a company in 2019, different when you start a company in 2022, the economy is different. The demand is different in the market. So it's, you have to believe what are you doing? That's the core thing. It's like, it's not, it's not something you do because I, I don't, I have time to do it. You have to believe in it. I don't know if I'm answering your questions correctly, but <laughs> you are answering my question correctly. It's it's beyond that. I can even like share some of that experiences. Like, yeah. uh, for example, like every time uh, I'm very passionate about AI and use of AI yeah. in oncology, and I'm working in this space. And I also have like passions outside of life, but I yeah. like to do some research and write about it. And I've been because I, I'm passionate about using AI in oncology to improve patients' outcome and use the right thing, I've been writing this paper for so long and I've been working on it for so long. And every time I ask myself, why am I doing this? Because I don't need research. I, I'm done. Like, I don't need to put another line on my CV. Well, well like we always need yeah. that extra line on CV. I would want to make a difference. But because like I'm passionate about it, I yeah. love this topic. I wouldn't do research on like, for example, uh, lymphoma, which is like something yeah. I like, but it's not my passion, but I'm more passionate yeah. about technology and change. And why am I doing this book? It's, it's, it's the passion that fuels you. It's, it's exactly. your purpose. Exactly. I mean, again, even if things don't work out, you're passionate about it. If it doesn't work out, you still feel good because you've done something, you tried it. And my motto is like saying, I wish I did is not going to get me anywhere. Mm -hmm. I will say I've done it. I tried it. I was successful. I wasn't successful, but at least I did it. I don't want to say I wish I did. And I give always give the example. Um, one of the startup I started, um, and people thought I'm crazy. That's before the Nest. I tell people like, there's a there's a technology out there. Look at your what the home thermostat at home, and your mobile phone can do a lot for you. He said like, if I'm traveling tomorrow. And the weather, let's say we live, you live in Michigan, I live in Boston. So the cold weather is a key. So if I'm leaving the house at six o'clock, I want my calendar to notify my car to warm up the car 10 minutes before. If there's a flight delay, then I'm going to be late. Then don't warm up the car at six o'clock. Or I'm supposed to be home at five. Don't, and I'm late. Don't turn on the heat at five o'clock. And people thought, like, you're crazy. And I did. Um, uh, tried to file a patent on it. I did a provisional patent. People are like, you're crazy. Nobody's going to use this. There's no technology going to allow people to do this. Like I said, it's coming. You have to think about it. And they talked me out of it at, and I didn't file the patent. And then maybe a year or two years later, Nest, the thermostat come up and all this technology is coming about. 
the smart home, the smart car and everything. And people start calling me like, do you remember the idea you had? Did you work on it? I said, no, I didn't. I wish I did. I could be a millionaire right now. But it, so I learned my lesson not to, I don't want to be in the position to say, I wish I did. I don't want to say I did it, it did not work. It's better for me. Wow. Yeah. That that resonates a lot with me. I, I completely agree with you. I think my goal in life too is like to minimize the regrets on the last day of my life when I'm um, on the bed and dying. I don't want to look backward and say, I wish I did this. I wish I did exactly. that. That that's the worst feeling. I, I wish I did that. The regret. It's the, you got it right. I mean, that's the worst thing. Well, last question, and I yes. promise. Yeah. What last words or advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs looking to start a company in healthcare technology? If you're going to say something to your earliest self, what would you say? <laughs> well, since I started medical technology. I became more patient than was before. You have to be very, very patient when working medical technology. And you have to be very um, decisive what you want to do and stay on it because you're going to get hit from different direction. It's not good. Nobody's going to use it. People are not going to adopt it. So you have to be patient and adaptive. That's the two things in medical technology. You cannot say, I'm going to work on it for six months. doesn't work. I'm going to leave. I guarantee you right now. It's not going to work in six months. That's no one work on medical technology for six months. Adopt to, to sell something for the healthcare system. It takes up to 12 months from the day you start talking to them. So you have to be very patient and also don't take it personal when things say, okay, the way you build it is not going to work. You need to do it different way. You do your research, make sure what they're saying is correct and adapt. Don't stuck on your one thing you had in mind, because if you don't be adaptive, you're going to lose too. Thank you so much. And again, you, whatever you say, it's, it, it resonates with me a lot. And because I'm in healthcare, I know what you're talking about. But for yeah. people who are just coming to the healthcare, they get frustration, frustrated by the amount of bureaucracy that there is. Um, it's crazy. No yeah, comment. It is. <laughs> Well, we're working on it between you as a doctor, me as an engineer, we can do figure out something one day. Of course, of course. Healthcare needs change, and that's why we're doing this. Yeah. And and yeah, we're I'm I'm a patient person right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. I don't want to take more of your time. Thank you so much. I really, Thank really you. appreciate your time. And I really appreciate it. And um, there was lots of value. I learned a lot today. And I hope our paths cross again in the future. I hope so. I hope so. We'll be in touch and I'll keep you updated on our progress too. I love it.